Um, here, okay? I can't even see. Okay. It's a little bit of a lag right now. You should put YouTube on. If it's on a different time with us, it'll uh, it might confuse you. Yeah, no, I won't. I'm, I'm not gonna. I won't. I, I'll, I'll watch it. I just want to watch the comments. Mm. I'll just lower it. <laughs> I'm reading your book on, by the way, Michael. Which one? The 13 stories. It's pretty good. Oh, good. I'm glad you like it. I'm, I, I'm doing it slow. I don't have that much time, but I, I've, I've been reading it. I have it here, actually. Okay, I got it. All right, folks. We are live. Hello, everyone. And welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. And... Tonight, we're going to talk about the Night Stalker case as seen on Netflix. And to talk about that case tonight, I have two of the NYPD's best retired detectives. I have Detective First Grade Michael O'Keefe, who worked for a long time in the squad, did a lot of time in anti-crime up in the 3-4 precinct, so he, he's used to very busy crime precincts. And I have crowd favorite and YouTube favorite, and one of my favorites, Detective Irma Rivera, first grade detective. She spent 11 years in Manhattan sex crimes, it was called at the time. Now it's called Manhattan Special Victims. And she finished her career in Manhattan South Homicide Squad. So we all watch the uh, Netflix documentary, The Night Stalker. And we can... We're not going to actually critique it. We're just going to talk about it because we felt that this case, the detectives in this case, did an outstanding job. And in any major investigation, one of the most difficult things to do is to make the identification of the perpetrator. And we were looking at this case, which was from 1985. I swore into the NYPD on January 21st, 1985. So that's how long ago this case occurred. And if you know anything about forensic evidence, there was no DNA in 1985. So we look at that case from the eyes of investigators that had, that had and have DNA available to us. But back in 1985, there was no such thing. And even blood evidence was very, uh, it wasn't a, a high predictable thing because 50% of the population was type O, 25% was AB, and then another 25% was split between the other blood types. So if 50% of an entire population is a, a, a certain blood type, it's not going to help you much in getting the perpetrator ID'd. This case, this serial killer, in five or six months, turned Los Angeles and San Francisco and the areas surrounding it into an area that was 
just terrified of this killer that came by during the night because he was such a heinous killer and he was not that predictable. The psychologist, you hear them talk about Richard Ramirez and behavior profilers also, it, his behavior was much different than most serial killers because he used a multitude of weapons. It's rare, first of all, for a serial killer to use a gun because serial killers usually like that up and up close and personal um, style of killing with a knife or a blunt object. So that was rare in itself. A, a young detective at the time, Gil Carrillo, predicted very early on in the investigation that these were sexually related homicides. And a lot of the, we call them hairbags in New York City, a lot of the old time detectives were like, kid, you don't know what you're talking about, kid. And it turned out that Gil Carrillo was correct in his assessment. And what occurred after that, after the very beginning cases, was a horror for any police department, for any geographical area of people, for anyone that lived around there, even for people that didn't live there to hear what this, basically this homicidal, uh, psychotic, was, was doing in these cases. As I said, I have two detectives tonight. The first person I'm going to ask to speak on this is Detective First Grade Michael O'Keefe. Mike, welcome to the show. And I'd like to hear your feelings about this case. Pleasure to be here, Bill. Yeah, I, have, I actually have a lot of strong feelings about this case. Uh, I, uh, I was impressed as hell with the investigation of the two, uh, two top detectives, Gil Carrillo and... Uh, um, Frank Salerno, uh, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Homicide uh, Squad. Um, as you said, this was uh, this case occurred. These this pattern, uh, and you really kind of hard pressed to call it a pattern because he was so random in his choice of targets. There was no pattern with respect to time uh, when he would hit. Almost no pattern as to where he would hit. Uh, Los Angeles County is huge and he was all over the place there even it seemed almost random his selection of homes and they were home invasion crimes for the most part there were a handful of abductions from the street but for the most part most of the murders were occurring in people's homes uh the other thing that you mentioned was the multitude of weapons that were used now it's one of the reasons why you can say he was the perfect example of a disordered criminal because there was no pattern, but what, and, and the other thing is he did very little to cover up the evidence of his crimes. When he was using a gun, he would repeatedly use that gun. So the ballistics were starting to match as the body count grew. He was leaving a, a multitude of evidence pointing to one offender. Uh, this ran from June of 1984. Uh, it actually began sooner, but the crimes that they identified uh, and the murders from June of 1984 through August of 1985. And for a serial murder pattern to occur, that's actually not a great deal of time. But the amount of crimes he committed from within that time frame is astonishing. It had never been seen before. And it's not just the amount of crimes, but the variety of them. There were abductions of children and sexual assaults on them. Um, 
There was no rhyme or reason as to the uh, the dynamics of the victims in the homes. I mean, he he attacked and raped the elderly, uh, males, females. Just it, it's very difficult to uh, to pinpoint exactly, you know, what fantasy he was trying to achieve because most of uh, of these serial killers are trying to achieve a, a, a fantasy in their head, this murder fantasy. And this was so random and so spread out and so diverse, it's difficult to really know what was he going for, except to be an agent of chaos and make people afraid. And he was very effective at that. Uh, you know, Mike, some people had uh, made comments that his, his eyes look, looked right through you. He had these angry, almost satanic eyes. And a couple of the survivors had um, reported that to, to the police. You know, his eyes were just, you know, basically the eyes of death. You know? yeah. Well, he was a classic sociopath in that he cared about nothing but what he was going through emotionally. He didn't consider anybody else's... Uh, he didn't consider anything. He was, uh, he was inhuman in that regard. And you've done our job for, for a while. You're going to meet sociopaths. And the common aspect that I always found dealing with true sociopaths, those dead eyes, they're not looking through you. There's just nothing in them. There's, There's nobody there. home. Yeah. There's nobody home. The old expression. And, uh, the light, and, the and lights that's are on. chilling in and of itself. Yeah. The lights are on, but no one's home. That old expression, right? Well, then no soul. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, clearly there are things going on in their mind. It's not going to make a lot of sense to you and I or to any reasonable person, but there's just no empathy, no humanity. It's, uh, and it's frightening in its own right, just to see. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, Mike, let me just, um, I want to get Irma's point of view on this because besides the 14 murders that occurred in this, uh, crime spree, this pattern, this serial killer. There was over 30 sex, sexual assaults. And one of them that was um, highlighted in the documentary was he, he kidnapped a six-year-old girl out of her bed. And he, he actually threw her in a duffel bag and brought her into his lair. I'll call it his lair because he's an animal and that's what animals have. They don't have homes, they have lairs. And he brought her in there and sexually abused her. And she was a smart little girl too. Like when you were watching the documentary, it just it like broke your heart, the terror that she must have experienced. And then at the end of the assault, he put her back in the duffel bag, took her out and dropped her off at a gas station and told her to call her, her family. What do you take from that, Irma? Um, first of all, um... You know, he was a bit, he was a mixture of like like um, um, Mike said. You know, he's a mixture of everything. Like you know, he was a, a first of all, he was a burglar, he was a murderer, he was a thief. I mean, he did a kidnapper. He did so many different things before he um, actually started killing and raping. Because the first thing that he did was he was a burglar, and I'm pretty sure he was also uh, did voyeurism. He probably was a masturbator. You right. know, that's how it starts a lot of times. And he is like the typical um, sadistic. What they call sadistic rapists, you know, like, you know, he likes to, 
cause pain. He likes to, you know, uh, uh, he likes to cause pain. He likes to torture his victims. And he also, most sadistic rapists, they kill their victims. So that's basically what he is. But he started off as a burglar. And what happened in one of the first cases that he did was when he committed his burglary, he didn't get anything from that burglary. So he killed, he killed his first victim, the 79 year old. You yes. know, and then from there he started, you know, he, I, I guess he liked the fact that he killed it. He got sexually aroused and then he started raping, you know, which is like, you know, I've seen that before where you have a rapist who starts off doing rapes of the elderly and then he winds up killing them. We had a case like that up in the two, three, a couple of years ago before I was in sex crimes, you know, when I was a detective in the two, three rip, you know, and I remember how he started off just doing a couple of rapes and then he finally killed one old lady. And then from there on, it turned into a big, huge pattern. You know, but um, I think on this particular case, you know, I think he must have been a victim also of child abuse, which of course we all know his father used to tie him up and leave him in the cemetery. Imagine being a young kid being in the cemetery at night, you know, tied up. So that was one that probably messed him up. You know, his uncle who kind of exposed him to, you know, sexual um, pornography and explained to him what happened with him in the war. You know, so, I mean, he was like damaged. He was really damaged, you know, as a child. And of course, from there, he turned into the rapist and murderer and, you know, person that he became. Did you see any type of uh, patterns like this in your experience in uh, Manhattan sex crimes? No, normally, like, you know, a, a lot of the cases we had, you know, the, the rapist would hit the same kind of victim. He'll either pick a woman with red hair, you know, he'll pick, a, you know, a a girl, uh, Asian girl, like we had an Asian rapist who um, only did little girls. And like in one particular case, the girl that he picked was, wasn't a little girl anymore. She was like uh, in puberty. So he didn't want it, He didn't want her because she already had pubic care. So like, you know, you, you have cases where they go for a specific type of, of victim. And in this particular case, I mean, I, I never seen anything where you, the person's going to do a, a child, a man, you know, a woman, an old woman, he didn't, it didn't matter what the person looked like. It didn't matter who the person was. Right. Well, I mean, at first, sometimes a, a burglary, sometimes you might have a rapist who's an opportunist, like depending what happens, you know, like he might just do be doing a burglary, somebody's there, he decides to rape, rape them. I mean, that's how he kind of like started, but then he became the statistic, sadistic rapist, yes. you know, started torturing his victims. Irma, can I just stop you for one second? I just want to give a shout out to some of the people on the live chat. Duty Ron, thank you so much for that super chat of $20. You're the man. MC's Audio, I saw your interview of Mark DeMeo. You you, you're fantastic. You're going to be a superstar in this business. Uh, Spirit Seeker, uh, These Twisted Times, David Herbsman, uh, Mimi J2. Uh, lots of fans that are uh, uh, in the Duty Ron family coming to see Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. And I really appreciate you guys coming by. Uh, this, you know, one of the things about this case too, which I think broke your heart, was the sexual abuse and the kidnapping of young children. It was just almost too much to handle. And one of the scenes that was so heartfelt to me was when they had this little girl. She was six years old, and she viewed the lineup, and she looked at the lineup, and she said to them, "Do you want me to?" to write the number two or two T-W-O. And all three of them were like reduced to tears, two detectives and the district attorney. And at that point, the district attorney said, you know something, we're not gonna prosecute these sex crimes because he's, he's gonna get life or he's gonna get the death penalty anyway. We, I don't wanna put these kids through this. And I think, I mean, that was, that was the right call, I think, you know? 
think of the kids, that girl, that beautiful girl who's now a woman and looks, she's a beautiful woman that was kidnapped and put in the duffel bag and brought in and, and raped and tortured. And she, she survived this. And now, now, now she's okay. I mean, she's okay. I'm sure she, she didn't just, she didn't just survive. She actually in the, in the documentary, she makes the point. She said, listen, he took me, he did these horrible things to me. He hurt me. Uh, I don't know why he let me live, but he did. And I've had, I grew up, I went to college. Mm -hmm. I got married. I have children. I have a life. I'm not letting me being a victim of this man define me. I'm not going to allow him to make me what he is. And I just, if, if there's a hero in this, apart from Gil and Frank, I'm getting a little choked up. Yeah. Because yeah. she's a hero. That's right. And uh, mm -hmm. just, I'm just, I can't say how impressed I am with this woman. She's just a superhuman being. You know, Mike, one of the things I, uh, I see, and, and Irma, you see it too, and we all see it, is that Murder, the crime of murder, especially serial killers, has been romanticized. And people, like, they just love to hear about it and love to talk about it and love to watch TV shows about it. Irma and I were on a, a TV show on um, investigation uh, discovery, and Irma was called Miss Homicide. And, as, you know, it was a case about homicide. I did six episodes of The Perfect Murder, and... It was not glorifying murder, but it was, that murder was the topic, you know, and people just love these shows. Look at how popular Forensic Files is, um, you know. See, but, can I say something? But that's sure. the, one problem that I noticed lately is a lot of the TV shows are showing a lot of serial killers. You know, you don't want that to start again. You know, I mean, we had serial killers in Son of Sam. You know, we haven't seen a serial killer like in New York. I mean, except for recently, we had a serial killer in the New York City Housing Authority. Right. I, I saw just, that. Yeah, Number but seven, three. He, right, but he's he's not the kind of serial killer like we see in Los Angeles. Like Los Angeles and some of these other cities are completely different than what we see here in New York. You know, it's just, I, I think though, Irma, it's much more difficult during in, in 2021 for someone to become a serial killer because they get caught much quicker than they did, you know, in 1985. Because I mean, of technology, I, mean, I have them. I mean, the people who were robbing cab drivers years ago and killing them—that that was a serial killer. They, that guy, I don't think ever got caught. You yeah, know? you're right. You're right. Oh, I mean, those are serial killers too. If you kill a cab driver, it doesn't always have to be a serial killer. It's the you know, like the one they show on TV that you know, yeah. you know. But um, but on this particular case, is one thing that's really frightening, which I've seen happen when I was in sex crimes, is being asleep at home and having somebody come into your house in the middle of the night. I mean. I mean, I've seen it where the guys, you know, pattern rape, we used to call them pattern rapists, not serial rapists. We used to call them patterns. Right. Um, where the family's sleeping at night, guy comes in through the window, you know, puts the husband on the bottom, the wife on top has, you know, commits his rape, you know, and then leaves, you know, but um, a homicide like this, I've never seen, except for there was one in the seventh precinct, the guy that came in through the window. I was, I, I didn't work in that case, but he came in through the window and he actually killed three people in one building. You know, and that was back. In yeah, I mean, I don't think it's uh, I think because we're, we're better at identifying and locking people up quicker than we were back in 1985 that DNA helps we're not get Yeah, DNA and, you know, uh, cell phones, video cameras, all that yeah. type of stuff. Go ahead, it, Mike. You want to 
and it's it's not just the evidence of, of who done it. We're much better now with the use of computers. Yes. Of identifying these patterns early on. See, where it's right. it was that's difficult to do back then. They, these guys really had to do some legwork to figure out these other locations because it wasn't just one jurisdiction. It went to San Francisco. Uh, there were other parts of LA. There were uh, uh, struck in places that were just outside LA County. But that's why it by they weren't unified. Their, their reporting system wasn't unified and it wasn't accessible back then. It's Whereas now, we have that kind of accessibility. You're going to identify the pattern much quicker, and then the evidentiary stuff comes in, and you're going to identify the killer much quicker. And it's for that reason that you're going to, when you see a serial killer like this guy in the 7-3, it stopped at three. How many would it have been if he hadn't been identified oh, as quickly? Right. right. He would have kept right. killing, that's, that's, that's for sure. Where, that's where VICAP comes in, in handy, you know, VICAP, you know, um, I, I don't really know what the exact meaning, what the letters mean. Um, anybody know? You know, Irma, I don't think they keep that up any longer. Yeah. That, that was such a good tool. Yeah, I don't think they keep it up. Any. Well, because other like <laughs> my experience wasn't so good with that, Irma. Right. See, but if it, if it, if it worked well, it would be great because you know, like in California, for instance, all these different jurisdictions on this case, then they weren't working together. Well, and that was another problem with this case. They weren't working together. One police department wasn't working with the other one. But, you know, it also comes uh, who's going to get him first, you know? Right. I just wanted to mention the, the first in the, in the documentary, the first um, incident they list happened on March 17th, which we all know for Irish is uh, St. Paddy's Day, right? Mm -hmm. And in that instance, he attacked a um, Dale Yoshi Okasaki and, and her roommate. And he killed uh, the Asian girl in the house, shot her right in the head. And the roommate came in and he also shot her, but the bullet was deflected by her car keys. And he, she actually lived and she got a look at him. So that was the first eyeball witness they had. And that was one of the things, the, the weird thing about that was that we, as I said before, Serial killers usually, of his variety, usually don't use a gun. They usually use a knife or a blunt object because it's the up-close and personal uh, type killing. And of course, that all defies, all reason is defied when you think of the Beltway sniper. That's all they used. And he was certainly a serial killer. And that's all he used was a gun. But in this type of home invasion, robber, uh, sexual predator, it's rare for them to use a gun. And the first two murders, he used a 22 caliber semi-automatic and they matched those, the ballistics from both those homicides. And today we also have much better ballistics. They didn't have brass catcher back then. Right. You want to explain what brass catcher is, Mike? Yeah, uh, brass catcher. It's actually, it's a database and it's kept, um, it's, almost like a national database of uh of uh bullet characteristics uh shell casings firearms uh everything having to do with ballistics and it's it's characterized it's put into this computer program and there are points of reference much like fingerprints and ultimately what happens is if you okay i've got ammunition and a homicide it's good it's readable there are grooves that can be read This now goes into the system and that bullet 
is now in the system and it's characterized. Oh, Mike, one of the things, though, let me just Two weeks later, you. the guy could be caught with the gun on another crime. Right. And when they put that into the system, it's going to spit out a match. Right. And now we're going to know that shooting fits this gun from this guy who was arrested. And it's, it's, a, it's another way that we can identify an offender. But, Mike, brass catcher, just for our listeners that aren't in law enforcement, what it does is it measures the the tool mark on the side of the brass. And that yeah, is actually from the injection rod. Yes, yeah. that's actually unique to that firearm. And it spits it out of the gun and that's left on the scene. Most of the time, the shooter does not collect his brass like we did at the range when we were shooting. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Police up your brass, they used to say. But anyway, so those unique marks on the side of the cartridge case are very unique and they put in a like mike said a database and it could be a gun could be used let's go back to new york city in brooklyn and the next week it could be used in manhattan and they could say hey that gun that's the same gun that was used in a shooting in brooklyn last week or a homicide mm -hmm. so it's it's a piece of evidence that's very very important and there's also another mark on the on the the primer and that's the um impression that the firing pin leaves. And that's also, also yes, very guns, unique yeah. to the gun. So all of these things, we've gotten better at the science of it, the forensic science of mm. ballistics. And, and of course, if we can recover the actual round and that has the lands and grooves and it could be matched exactly to the firearm. So the, the first two murders, he used the same gun and it was a 22 caliber semi-automatic. So when we talk about that in the homicide business, and I hate to act like it's, it's a business, but that's called case linkage and uh, also referred to as linkage analysis. And it's a process of determining whether there's um, discrete connections or distinctive behavioral factors that associate two or more previously unrelated cases by means of crime scene analysis. This is very important, especially in a case like this with a serial killer. It involves establishing, comparing the physical evidence, victimology, crime scene characteristics, motivation, modus operandi, and signature behaviors of each of the cases under review. It also requires consideration of both behavioral similarities and dissimilarities. Case linkage is used in two separate and very different contexts, investigative and forensic. So all of these things, these crime scenes are so, so important. This, when, they're always important. But when you have a serial killer, it's up to 100%, 1,000%. This crime scene, the evidence, the scientific evidence could be on the scene to identify this guy. Mike, any thoughts on that? Well, in this particular, uh, this particular case, they actually used the forensics for case linkage. They were actually able to link not just the firearm, and I believe he had graduated to the 25 at this point yes. with, the, with the red uh, red primer ammunition. Uh, they were able to link the ballistics or know that they were dealing with the same guy in the crimes in Los Angeles and now one in San Francisco, which is three hours away, a three-hour drive away. I mean, this, this is a great distance for, serial, for a serial killer to strike. Uh, but they were quickly able to realize it was the same guy based upon the ammunition and also based upon the distinct footprint that he left from that uh, from that running shoe, that Avia. 
that was particular to uh, to each crime scene. There it is, right there. Up yeah. on the screen is the um, the shoe he was wearing, which was an, an Avia aerobic shoe, and it was found at several of the crime scenes, uh, and one of them was found in blood on the uh, on the sheet that was on the bed of the woman he, he just finished murdering and raping. And also on one of his uh, his uh, murder and rape victims, uh, he actually stomped on her with that shoe, and they and they and they came up with blood impressions and also impressions because he stomped on her so hard right. it actually came off the body. So it's. I mean, there was a lot of anger in in, in uh, many of these murders and rapes. Yeah, that, that, it was unfortunate that, that someone spilled the beans about that shoe print. You know, um, who was it? Was it the mayor? Who? It was uh, actually Diane Feinstein. But I, I don't really blame her. I blame the chief that gave her that much information. There was no need to give her all that information. He could just right, say, look, was... he's identified. They have a picture of him. She didn't need to know the crime scene information. And either did the public. Because what does the guy do now? He stops wearing these shoes, right? No more case linkage, right? Because he's yes, they never recovered the shoes after that. That's a really important piece of uh, mm. of forensic evidence. No, no, but that well, was also good work on the detective's part that he actually um, began noticing that. You know, um, mm. Carrillo is that his, his name, right? Carrillo, yeah, Gil Carrillo. Uh, yeah, Gil Carrillo. Yes, yes. Yeah. No, one of the the, the, the third. Go ahead, Mike. You want to say something? Well, I was going to say, and I mean, the moral of the story at this point is that the the, the greatest detriment to police investigation and police work is police administration. You got people calling the shots that are way out of their lane and they shouldn't be permitted to even have this information, never mind give it out. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is they, they almost lost the Avia early on in the investigation when some ass clown tipped off the member of the press from the Los Angeles uh, news That's team. right, that's right, yeah. And, then, and, and I am gonna make a criticism about one thing with respect to, apart from Diane Feinstein, who her diary or the mouth, they almost lost every secret that they had on this investiga in investigation. She shouldn't have even known any of it. No, not at all. But some, it, and it had to be a cop or a member of the department that tipped this reporter off to the shoe. Now, okay, I understand you're a parasite. You have a job to do. And you don't care about anybody but yourself. She actually shook the cops down to get an interview out of Gil and, and Frank. And they had a consent to it or she would have blabbed about the show. Absolutely. Knowing yep. full well that it was it was key evidence that had to be held back. Yep. She shook them down for an interview nonetheless. At the end of the documentary, they're talking about how this emotionally affected everybody involved. And they got to her and she was so shook up because she had to experience these things. She didn't experience anything. She right. was a voyeur. Mm -hmm. That sergeant uh, on the screen is Sergeant Frank Salerno. Frank Salerno. Uh, Frank Salerno also worked on the Hillside Strangler case. So he had experience with uh, serial killers. I'd just like to also, again, thank Duty Ron for another $10 super chat. And... Um, all you people that are in the suit, uh, in the chat right now, um, we're trying to basically not critique this case, but but give uh, also twelve step woman. Thank you so much for the 
$5 super chat. Uh, Heidi Lee, how you doing? It's Stacy, tarot reader. Um, hoppy Hoppy. I love that. I love that Hoppy Hoppy. Mimi J2. Uh, we're trying to give a, a little overview of this case about all the things that occurred. Also, one thing that I like to say about this case, you know, people have to realize how much it affected the family. I mean, even Gil's family, I mean, his family had to move out because the perp was getting so much closer to his house. So, you know, you can see in this, in this um, documentary, you can see the dynamics of how these cases actually affect law enforcement. Like a lot of people aren't aware of that, but it affects, it really affects us just as much as it affects people who watch this documentary. Some people complain about how graphic it was, you know? I mean, for us, like we're so used to seeing that. There was you know? actually real crime scene photos in this. And, yeah. uh, I just wanted to talk about the, uh, probably one of the most heinous uh, ones, the one on March 27th, they call it the Whittier murders. He enters Whittier, California home, previously burglarized. He fatally shoots Vincent Charles Zazara as he's sleeping. Mm -hmm. And he rapes the wife and then he kills her and cuts her eyeballs out yeah, right. and puts them in a jewelry box and takes them with him. I mean, so that's not a deranged homicidal uh, maniac. I don't, I don't know what is, if he that's not the behavior of it. Mm. Uh, a short leaves, period. He did so much in such a short period. Yeah, I mean, he killed so many people. He also left the footprint, the Avia footprint, in the flower beds, and mm -hmm. uh, and it was the same gun used. The same twenty-two caliber uh, semi-automatic was used in this case. I mean, when I don't know how much during the time of this, the actual uh, March fourteenth, nineteen eighty-five. I don't know how much they released to the press of what he did during that case. Um, if they released the part about him gouging out the eyes and take, I mean, that would probably cause sheer panic in, in that neighborhood. I mean. It would have been irresponsible, I would think, to release that kind of detail to the public. I, 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 Mike, I agree with you, but police yeah. departments sometimes do that just mm -hmm. because they want to be transparent with the press and they don't consider the victims or maybe it, even the public it seems to me from watching this that this particular department this the, these two particular detectives and their direct supervisors um they were pretty they played things it looks like they played things pretty close to the vest and they had a real good uh handle on what information got out and what information didn't it was only when the pattern expanded beyond los angeles and they had to start sharing information with other law enforcement agencies that it all fell to hell because now you're dealing with politics in another jurisdiction. You don't have any control at that point. And it Mike, ended up biting them in the ass when the case went to San Francisco. And the chief shared it with the, that, that imbecile mayor who's now a, uh, a, a Diane Feinstein's a senator, right? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, know, yeah. Bill, you know, this case reminds me a little bit of Matias Reyes. Matias Reyes seems to fit this type of profile as well. You know, he, he threatened to gouge the eyes out. You know, he stabbed the mother in front of her kids. You know, um, he started off just doing simple rapes. And then he, and that's and that's simple, but he started raping like drug, you know, um, crackheads. And then he started yeah. moving to Central Park, you know. So he escalated also. Didn't, then, Murma, didn't he also rape his own mother? I heard that, but I, I can't really. Yeah, I think he did. I think he did. I mean, uh, he threatened, like, one of his victims, the one that he murdered in front of her kids, he said, you know, your eyes are your kids. You know, he wanted to take her eyes out. 
So, you know, he's the same way. Like, you know, he was, I mean, I remember him as a kid, but growing up, I remember the blank look in his eyes also where he changed, where he just made a complete change in his personality, you know? So yeah. we have a, we have a question from the panel. Uh, do you feel the Netflix uh, documented this case factually? I don't know. Cause I don't know the real facts of this, sh of what happened. Only Gil and Frank, I think can answer that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it was probably uh, done factually. I think there were a lot of, look, the, the, the documentary was probably total about two hours, right? And I think to cover such an extensive case in that short a period of time. Uh, the victims are factual. The victims are factual. Yeah, I mean, I think they probably did a pretty good job. I would think that um, it was probably, there, there's, this is a, this is Richard Ramirez growing up with his family. Uh, I think he was actually, he was, I think he was the youngest kid in his family. So I don't think that's his sister, but I think that's his father and his mother. Um, once he was cleaned up, he didn't look like the devilish person he looked, uh, looked like when he was out on the street. So evil, doesn't he? This is, uh, I'm just trying to, show the little flyer for this. I'm sure a lot of you people saw this out there. And then he used to sort of taunt the press and he, he thrived in showing that pentagram that he was a um, devil worshiper. See, but Bill, this is another reason why the death penalty, like if they would have killed him, it would have been so easy. You know, it's, I'm so glad that he died the way he did. I mean, he, he had cancer, he stayed in jail for a while. I'm pretty sure he suffered. You know, he wouldn't care if they gave him a death, if they gave him an injection, he probably would have been very happy to take it. Right. You know? This is what he looked like right after he was arrested, all coming off the street. Ugh. He was a big cocaine abuser. He was a uh, narcotics abuser, smoked a lot of weed. Those look uh, like meth teeth. Yeah, yeah. right? That's Gil uh, Carrillo. Did a great job. And at the time, he was a very young detective. I think he had about 11 or 12 years on the job at the time. He wound up making lieutenant. Looked, you know, it's funny with Gil, how innocent he looked while he was working in that case. Then you see how much harder he became as he got older. Yeah, yeah I think he looks distinguished as he got as he got older. But uh, yeah, he did look like a big teddy bear. Yeah, he was, had it right. <laughs> and that's, of course, the Frank uh, Salerno. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the, the reasons why I was so drawn by these guys and, and so taken with them um. They're from the era of the cops and detectives that when I first came on the job mm -hmm. that I wanted to emulate. Mm -hmm. You know, they're the Vietnam vets, the Korean War vets. Uh, they squared away. They were they were father figures to, to, to young cops or, right. or, you know, mentors in any event. And uh, and this was the era when they came on is when I when I was a rookie cop. And they just, they reminded me so much of the guys in the 3-4 squad that I so wanted to grow up to be like. Huh. So it was, a, you know, it, it, this was a lot of fun for me to, 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 to look into and watch. It was a great for that respect. Great and, and I was, I was given to, I wanted a roof for that. Mm -hmm. You know, the so, other thing is, Mike, and um, all these major investigations, you got to remember, it's not just the detectives. There's a whole large police department and there's people at the top that, of course, are making decisions and are getting it from the community and the politicians. Tremendous pressure yeah. uh, when someone like 
this is out there. Mm -hmm. So from a patrol standpoint, I thought about that too. Like, what do you do to make sure maybe patrol catches this guy? And right away, I thought about the fact that all the crimes, he was using a stolen car. Yeah. He was either stealing a car for the that exact purpose of to commit the murders or he's stealing a fresh car. And so, they were all beaters. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you I had guess, to- I guess at that point, you'd want to put all your patrol and your highway people on it. At nighttime, every beater on the road, pull it over, identify the driver. Absolutely. Verify, That's what I was- Verify it's not stolen. I was thinking about that from the point of view of patrol yeah. and what could patrol do to help the detectives. How about that he, he was living on Skid Row at one point? How about getting undercovers out there? How about, you know, how about- well, I, don't, I don't think they knew that he was living on Skid Row until they got him identified. Right, I, right. They found that out And it was on. one of the reasons that when you, when you understand that, okay, this explains why there aren't witnesses that say, I think I know that guy because it's two different universes. He's hitting in residential- middle class to well-to-do areas but he's living in a bus terminal with bums and it's ultimately from debriefings of minor arrests of people living down on skid row that his identity starts to emerge and, and they get an idea of, of who it is that they're looking for so it was uh i mean if anything else just the fact of who he was and where he came from made it more difficult for these detectives. And they still did a brilliant job. Right. But one thing, you know, when you were on patrol and there was a pattern in your precinct or there was a pattern, everybody would be looking for that person at night. I'm pretty sure the cops on patrol had to be looking, you know, based on the description they had, they had to be doing something looking for him. Because that Irma, was a great Irma, anybody. Irma, you were in the two, three at that time, that 17 year old crackhead was killing all those bodega owners. Remember that kid? I think it was in 1985. That was, that was um, 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 well, he didn't kill anybody. He did a lot of robberies. But, but he shot a lot. He shot a lot of people. Yeah. 1985. I, I can't remember that. I know yeah. I had, I know that Raymond Mercado was doing a lot of. Uh, maybe murder. it was maybe it was 86, 80. No, probably it was like 87 because I was an anti-crime. And that was there from 82 to. They like, put every anti-crime from Manhattan North in the 23 precinct to catch this guy. And I think street crime, along with the 23 anti-crime, caught the guy right after a bodega stick. -up. Back then, street crime would have been all over a case like this. I mean, they, they, they were. I mean, I think on the NYP, we did a good job that NYPD did with pattern cases back then. You know, even I think today, they, like you said, I haven't heard of any patterns because I guess I'm not on the job. I don't hear too much about patterns. But, no. you know, there, there also has to be a uh, strategy. If he does hit, you know, shut down the highways. He A lot of times he hit close to highways because he wanted a good escape route. So that's another thing. You know, there has to be a coordinated response not just by the detectives, but by patrol. You know, as soon as it goes out, all right, we think he hit again. You got to shut down the roads. You yeah, know. but on a case like this, how often was it that um, they found out that the victims were dead right away? I mean, was it right away? Well, I, a lot of times it wasn't right away. Right, but right yeah, and that was one of the problems. Some, look, sometimes you would kill twice in one night. I know. I can't believe he did that. I mean, you know, which kill or kill, and then later on that. Uh, because there was no one there to rape or he ended up killing them. He'd commit a sex crime later on in the night to take care yeah. of that aspect of his compulsion. Right. It was, it was July unbelievable. 7th, yeah. yeah. July 7th, he did that. Yeah. The, the phrase that keeps sticking in my head is agent of chaos. Yeah. 
Well, you know, there's one, here he is, uh, Ramirez kills in Monrovia. And I don't know California well, but these neighbors' hoods were spread apart. Uh, he breaks into Mabel Marbell and Florence Nettie Lang's home. He attacks Lang with a hammer, binds her in the bedroom, and then binds and attacks Bell. He uses Bell's lipstick to draw a pentagram on her body. They were sisters, weren't they sisters? Right, and on the walls of both of their bed bedrooms after raping her. The women are found two days later, alive, but Bell eventually dies from her injuries. Yeah. July that, that was the first time that uh, Satanism was actually an element in any of the cases. That was the first time it appeared when the pentagram showed up. Right, when he drew the pentagram. And yes. they, uh, they endeavored to kind of keep that under wraps, and they were able to do so as long as the crimes continued to occur in Los Angeles. It's when it went outside and got to San Francisco that the media got tipped to the sat satanic uh, uh, aspect of it right and i don't know if he really was a satanist or he was just dabbling with things to see if he could fulfill the fantasy that he had in his head uh the second time that satan comes up in this is on july 7th um he did two cases after he finishes yeah after he kills sophie dickman's husband and he rapes her and he's Keeps her alive. Basically, he wants to know where the valuables in the home are. And he says, is that it? Is that all there is? She says, that's all there is. I swear to God. He says, no, don't swear to God. Swear to Satan. That's right. Those yeah. are the only two elements in these crimes, at least as far as the documentary showed, that Satanism came up. And yeah. he brings it up again prior to the trial. I wonder if the media made any mention of Satan, you know, like may, maybe made a mention of him being satanic, you know, maybe. I wonder. Well, they, they did when Diane Feinstein released it to them. Yes. Oh, yeah. Thank you. You okay. know, one of our 12-step women, one of our live chatters, asked the question, do reporters mess up your cases on a frequent basis? Every the chance they get. Yeah, but the bosses do. The bosses give them the information. That's the problem. See, in New York City, uh, just uh, the live chat folks, uh, in New York City, we have a unit called Deputy Commissioner of Public Information. And if the press wants anything, they call that office. And then that office will either call the detective or the detective squad and ask for the information. And if the detective refuses to give it to the um, DCPI person, they kick it up to a DCPI boss and they, he tries to intimidate you into giving the information. And information that could potentially destroy your case. But it really has gotten to the point, or it, when I was on the job and Mike and Irma got to the point that they would wanted to be so transparent to have a good relationship with the press that the police department didn't care if it destroyed your case. You know, you know who was tremendous in that position because he was a cop? Um, Mike Collins. Do you remember him? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Mike's still around. I, I saw him at the Busick uh, Memorial Mass uh, when they had it last year. Um, looks good, but he was he was he was a detective, and yeah. you could talk when they would kick it up. When you basically tell the sergeant or the cop or the detective, no, you're not getting this information. They kick it up to him. He call you. You talk to him like I'm not giving it out because of this. Yes. And Mike would be like, All right, yeah, that makes sense. Sit on that. Yeah, but you know, understood. Some, Mike, you want to hear something? I had a, a case of a um, a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor was murdered by a prostitute and her boyfriend. <sighs> and we had everyone in the case identified. And, the, and this morning, I get a call from a detective from DCPI. He says, 
oh, what's going on with the case? I said, well, we just got everyone identified and we're going out to get them right now. And he says, yeah. I go, what do you mean, yeah? He goes, let me have their names. I go, I'm not giving you their names. I, I go, we need to get us. He doesn't even he doesn't even listen to me. He hands the phone to an inspector who gets on the phone screaming, Oh, are you to tell us we can't? So I I immediately lied to him. I said, Chief so and so told me not to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so since he was an inspector and this guy was a chief, he was like, You have the chief call me. Yeah, I'm sure the chief is gonna yeah, I'll rush get right to, on that to rush to call you, inspector. And then we went out and got all three perps. Now you can have their names. Yeah. <laughs> After we interviewed them, they made Would statements. Would you like their photos too? Yeah, yeah, I'll give you everything you want right now, but you weren't getting it before we got them, you know? Mm. But that's, the press can be your ally and good police departments use the, they play the press like a violin, but- Good detectives play, yes. know how to, how to play a reporter. Um, yes. I actually, in my novels, in my police novels, I, I have ample examples of Patty Durr uh, twisting reporters to his uh, own devices. The press is very important. Look, I know, and I don't want to cut to the end of this because we're not there yet, but they use the press at the end uh, to capture this guy. And I know, and I would have probably felt the same way yeah. that the LA detectives wanted to get him. But guess what? And they were what? pretty sure that they could get him. But you can't but... take that risk. <laughs> There are lives you know, at stake. If, while yeah. you're looking for him, he kills two more people. You yeah. know, this what, was this was the, this was the one time in the case where I actually agreed with the decision to put his identity out there. Yes, you have Just to for the simple reason that you have to. That, I mean, this guy. If you look at the danger he was to the community, every little bit the and the, and the thing about it is, once you put his identity out there. They basically deputized the community. Every yes. he was on every newspaper. That's yeah. how he got caught. Absolutely. Yeah. You know there was another and case, I, and I love the fact that he made the mistake of trying to run and flee through a Mexican neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> they beat him up. They beat him up with a pipe. I yeah, forget. with a piece of rebar. Yeah, yeah that was great. That it was, was wonderful. <laughs> and it was a and it was a Chicano cop, uh, uh, L.A. sheriff, that basically he's like. I need help there. They're going to kill his ball. They, they, they saved this, this killer's life, right? Yeah, basically. There was another case uh, in Sierra Madre where he, um, he attacked a 16-year-old girl while she was sleeping in bed. And uh, he, he hit her with a tire iron. Yeah. He was sleeping in bed and then tried to strangle her with a telephone cord. But the cord started to spark. Yeah, it was an electric cord. Yeah. Yeah. And... He flees, Ramirez flees, believing that Jesus saved this girl. Wow. So there it comes up. Well, he up thought she was dead. And then all of a sudden her eyes opened and she woke up and he thought that Jesus resurrected her. And he got all freaked out and tipped. No, the amazing thing is, and I think about this, uh, 85, 95, 2005, it's, 40, it's 46 years ago, right? Now, so that 16-year-old girl would be 62 years old right now, wow. right? And just think of what her life's been like, having to always have that memory of, your, you know, a sacred place to most people is their bed. It's yeah. the safest place. It should be the safest place in the world, right? Your your bed, where you go to sleep every night, where you lay your head, right? Uh, and for that to have happened 
to a 16 year old girl and she has had to live with that. It's the ultimate violation. You have nowhere to feel safe at that point. Did he, was he on an interview and, and talk about why he committed his crimes? Oh, I don't think so, right? Did anyone well, ever- yeah, No, he did. He, uh, he, he made reference to it. And basically what it came up with is he said he was evil and he wanted to, to cause as much fear and pain as he could. And that's exactly what he did. And I don't think there was anything about his crimes that didn't uh, belie that fact. It's that's really the only motive he could have had, because he wasn't staging the crime scenes, like he was trying to paint the perfect picture, like a lot of serial murderers do. He's just leaving it in disarray and leaving people's lives in ruin. And I think that was, in in fact, his, his motive through all yeah. of this. Well, you know, the, I I watched some. Um, psychologist and uh the, the question of was he born this way or did he get this way from his upbringing i think the upbringing and well there was there was not a consensus on um how it occurred and from all the things i watched i think it was a combination of both he he had he had epilepsy right and apparently when he was a kid he had fallen and hit his head numerous times um he started smoking pot when he was 10 years old and we discussed uh his uncle who came home from vietnam and showed him mutilated bodies and things that he had done to these uh vietnamese women and then he also had a, had a cousin who was a peeping tom and he used to take him out with him on these yeah. peeping tom ventures so he didn't have the most uh normal of childhoods but yet there's people that have worse childhoods than that, and they don't become serial killers. Forgetting one thing, his father's time in the freaking cemetery at night. I mean, that's freaking bizarre. I mean, that that alone is crazy, you know? Yeah, I mean, no, that never happened to me. A, that <laughs> so not an excuse for what he did, but you know, but no, I'm not. I'm not even saying it's an excuse. But there's people that have worse upbringings and yeah, worse yeah. things happen to them than that, and they don't, they don't become serial killers. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's creepy and macabre, but it's not really violence. Uh, per se, yeah. the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist that uh, examined him prior to sentencing, and prior actually it was during an appeal for his death sentence, examined him, and he ended up writing a book about it, and uh, he titled it uh, "Seal Killer uh, Made, Not Born," and he cited what he cited as the cause for his mental instability, if you will, were the repeated concussions and the blackouts from being hit in the head. Um, it cited his, uh, his early drug use. It cited the, uh, the, the uncle who basically. He had to molest him. I'm sorry. The uncle had to do something. Yeah. Different. it never. Well, that was never, that never came out, but yeah, it kind of sure. seems like it probably occurred. Yeah. Now that uncle ended up murdering his wife. Right in front of him. In front of him. Right in front of him. Right, right. But here's the thing, and, and you don't know this until you do some follow-up reading. He beat that case on an insanity charge, and he was back in, in, in uh, Ramirez's life three years later, just three years after the, this murder. So he was like a Professor Emeritus of, of, uh, of serial crime. He sees his uncle get away with murder. He probably yeah. he get away with it, too. Yeah. Mike, was it was it his cousin or his uncle that was in Vietnam? I'm, I'm a little. Confused. It was the uncle. It was the uncle. Okay, Miguel. So they, yeah, and, and Miguel actually actually he was in special forces, as a matter of fact, in Vietnam, and he had pictures of 
mutilations of, of, of Vietnamese women that he had he had raped and tortured and dis and uh, dis not even disfigured dismembered. One of them, including he had the woman's head in the photo. It's crazy. So it, it was as if you know if you could build a serial murderer. I guess this is probably graduate school. I guess I don't know. I want to shout out again to Duty Run. He keeps throwing me money. Uh, Duty Run. <laughs> I feel like I'm a pole dancer. Thank you so much for that $5 chat. And uh, Kathy Drew, hello, 12-step woman, Moonlight View. Um, Marlene Lachios, these twisted times. Rebecca Hicks, Jacqueline Gutierrez, Mimi J2, Duty Ron, of course, MC's Audio. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Stacy, Kathy Drew, Michalina Serino. All you people at uh, your Duty Ron fans that are coming on to the Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories uh, podcast, I'm happy that you're subscribing to my channel. Uh, as you could see, these um, superstars that I bring in all the time from the NYPD, Detective Michael O'Keefe, uh, both first graders, Detective Irma Rivera, Miss Homicide. <laughs> Miss Lower East Side, Miss Alphabet City, whatever you want to call it. Isn't she beautiful? Yeah, I won't right. even say how old she is, but because <laughs> Latino women don't age. I mean, Can I say one thing about, you know, like you, you keep mentioning that I'm a first grader. You know, um, Richard Price was a writer, you know, who's a friend of mine. He sent me an article regarding the first female first grade detective who I want to give a shout out to. Her name was Isabella Goodwin. She was born in 1865. She became a cop in, in like 1912, you know, and um, she got first graded in, she was the first woman to get first grade in the NYPD because she worked on a robbery case where she became an undercover. So to her family, if they're out there, Isabella Goodwin, I just want to, you know, I mean, she laid the groundwork for me. That's a beautiful <laughs> shout out. And for, for, for you folks from other states, other cities, other countries, a first grade detective, uh, on the NYPD makes lieutenants pay. So he gets to do all the cool work, the investigative work, and he doesn't have to be a boss or sit on the desk or any of that stuff. And most first grade detectives, besides making lieutenants pay, they usually make about five or 600 hours a year overtime. So they're living large, right? Yeah, but, but besides being a first grade, first first grade woman detective, she also became a first grade lieutenant and she died in 1943. So Isabella Goodwin, I'm a shout out to her. A shout out to her family because I'm sure she's not around anymore. But uh, surprise, thank you for the article. That, that's great. That's excellent. So uh, on this case, I mean, one of the things that threw everyone off, of course, is how prolific he was, and the different um, different behaviors he exhibited at the crime scenes, and the different behaviors he exhibited by doing the gamut of crimes that he did, you know, burglaries, the sex crimes of kids was just over the top. And that's the thing I think that all the behaviorists, all the detectives, anyone that investigated this case, that was the thing I think that really, they got everyone, you know, that, that this guy was not just a serial killer, but he was a serial sex offender of children. And that, that would, that, you know, anyone that hurts children is the devil, is no good. You know, he's just. Well, it's, interestingly enough, I actually have a point uh, 
I was thinking about that. And then with the exception of an early abduction um, and murder of, of a child, for the most part, his child victims, he did not kill. Except for one, the first one. The first one, yeah. But after that, and, and, it, and, and it began with Anna Horonis, uh, he would, yeah, he would abduct them. He would take them, if not at the location, he would take them somewhere else. And he would brutalize them sexually. But other than that, he wasn't using any other violence on them. And he would he would leave them somewhere and have them contact family to come get them. Now, he in his mind, I believe he thought that he wasn't hurting them. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why he treated children differently than his adult victims in most cases is because intellectually and emotionally, he related to them and thought of himself as a child, as a petulant child, that was just satisfying his whims. Or he was molested as a child also, which could have happened also with him, and that could have been the reason why, you know? It, I mean, it's entirely first, possible, but... And the first one he killed, you know, he, maybe he felt bad about killing that one person. Or it could be another thing where I've seen perps, you know, where they'll scar a victim. I mean, did he want to scar them forever? Like, you know, it could be another... Uh, well, could, the, on, the only semblance of empathy he shows throughout this horrendous uh, victimization of society with violence is leaving the child sex uh, victims alive. And that's it. That's the single element of humanity he demonstrates. And it almost seems in, in the conversations, Anna shares their conversation. He actually apologizes and says, I'm sorry. But he says, but I'm not sorry because I'm not going to stop. So it's... Uh, it, well, you know, it's it's the like, common thing that um, the abused becomes the abuser. Right. And he probably was a, sexually abused as a child. A, a, lot of, a lot of the perps, a lot of the perps that I arrested in sex crimes, a lot of them were molested as children. Hmm. You know, a lot of them were. As a matter of fact, the East, like I've mentioned once before, the East Side Rapist, you know, one of the East Side rapes, Rapist, he had a big scar across his mouth. And um, he told me that he tried to commit suicide when he was younger, biting into a cord. And I said to him, I go, you know, were you molested as a child? And he says, I, I remember his words. He said, I know what it like. It feels like to rape. And I know what it feels like to be raped. And he tried to commit suicide as a kid biting into a cord. I think it was his grandfather was molesting him because I asked him that, but he didn't, he didn't want to answer that question. But that was a brownstone rapist, actually. Yeah. He's climbing through the windows at night. The interesting thing about that, uh, Arma, is, uh, yeah, a lot of offenders were victims in the mm -hmm. past, but the flip side of that coin, and it, you seldom see it spoken about, mm -hmm. there were people who have grown up as victims of abuse and violence and sexual violence, and it triggers a protective instinct in them. Mm -hmm. And they become vigilant. Many of them become police officers for that yeah, reason. And, because yeah, who, who molested them? A priest? Or was it somebody else? You know, was it a stranger? It really doesn't matter. I mean, I haven't seen extensive studies on it, but I've read some things on it that not everybody who is a victim no, of, that, of, of this type of violence necessarily becomes an offender. No, Sometimes true. it's the flip side of the coin and they become the protectors. Right. So it's, a, it's an interesting dichotomy. This well, guy could have gone both ways. One other question, Mike, the book, who was the person who interviewed him that you said earlier? She wrote a book about it? 
No, she was. It was a he, actually. I think uh, it was the psychiatrist that interviewed him. I believe during one of his appeal processes for the death penalty. What's the name of the book? You have the name of the book, or you don't know? I think. I think if you look it up, it's. Uh, is it serial killer? Made not born. Okay. All right. Okay. You probably if you Google that, it'll come up. I know it was in one of the articles that I read on this case, mm -hmm. and it was information that wasn't contained in the uh, in, in the documentary. Oh, one oh. other thing that was absent from the documentary, and I'm sure it was just because the documentarians never got to it, mm -hmm. there was no mention of photo books or victims looking at, at photos, which is interesting because you would think that that would be one of the first things that you would do. Now, keep in mind, this was in the days of wets. Nobody has a computerized system. Remember back then? Remember Catch? Yeah. I even catch. I mean, the old you burn your, you burn, burn your witnesses out looking at too many pictures sometimes. How about the M.O. room? You guys remember the M.O. rooms? I mean, I came on 1982, but that was the M.O. room. Do you remember that? Or you guys are not familiar with the M.O. room? No. It was a room downtown where they used to have all the pictures. Just, it was called the M.O. room. It was, everything was by M.O. The crime That's actually when, I, at the time, my first uh, assignment in the detective bureau was in Queens, and they called it Catch. And it was the same thing. The, the pictures no, were catch, broken down by crime. No, Catch was different. The Catch came later. There was another room down in headquarters. It was on in the fingerprint room, in the fingerprint unit, latent fingerprint unit, where they had all the pictures there. This is before Catch. And then mm. I, I remember when Catch came, Catch came later on. You're dating that, yourself, Irma. That was before my time. I know. It was, it was 1982 when I came on. So. You know, Irma was 20 years old when she uh, came on the police department. Yeah. Can you imagine that? You just gave her age away. That's Thanks, okay. Bill. Oh. Well, <laughs> it's all right. well, she looks beautiful. I mean, to, <laughs> I won't tell you how old she is. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention, and this case was not listed in the documentary. And April 10th, 1984, uh, Ramirez worked in the Holiday Inn. And he kidnapped raped and murdered a nine-year-old Chinese girl. Yeah. And the thing, when you talk about technology, they didn't link this case to him until 2009 because of DNA. And because so, of a detective who had a case, a cold case. Yes, a cold case. But one of the things that... We, wasn't Ramirez already dead by then? Yes, yeah. yeah. But they, the other thing that I'm sure of, and I would love to talk to... Uh, Gil Carrillo, if I, I sent them to our fans, I sent Gil Carrillo a, um, I friended him on Facebook and we're friends on Facebook and I invited him to come on this show. I don't, uh, I don't know if he will. And I also sent him a um, invitation to watch tonight's show. And um, I'm sure he must get tons of inv invitations, but Hey, we're brothers in blue. You know, you can come on Gil, if you're watching this, right? I'm not a journalist. He's a star now, and justifiably so. Yeah, he is. He's a big star. Uh, he deserves this. every bit of it. And he was, well, he was a star when this happened. And he, yeah. you know, you yeah, know, just to, uh, to follow up, Gil Carrillo did 38 years on the job. Oh. And uh, he retired as a lieutenant. And he actually was a police chief, uh, an acting pol police chief for about four months. But, uh you know, in California, you know, you know how they are down there. They after four months, they didn't like him. You know, <laughs> and he was a superstar. You know, but yeah. when we talk about also the this the serial killer, I'm sure he did 
tons more crimes than he was ever caught for. Right. And including, I'm sure there's other murders he did that were never linked to him. What do you think about that, Mike? Absolutely. I mean, he was his uh, his headquarters was basically the bus terminal. And we know he was traveling, obviously, between San Francisco and Los Angeles. His family was still in uh, Texas, El Paso, Texas, Texas. Yeah. And he had also family in Arizona. So. I mean, there's a lot of real estate between all of those points. And if you look at his frequency of attacking anywhere that there's a lull in Los Angeles and San Francisco is a good bet. He was doing crime somewhere else. Absolutely. That was the one thing that if you look at it, you take out those gaps of offending and just look at it and put the time together when he was in one location, he just was so consistent. Pretty much. It was like a vitamin for him one a day. Yeah. And in many cases, two times a day yeah so it, it, for, for, for there to be crimes out there that we don't know about that he participated in very very possible how old was he when he was how old was he when he did this i think he was 28 oh yeah, yeah. so yeah um the the other thing is uh a lot of people may ask what 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 did he do for a living did he did he ever have a job and he had two jobs Go ahead, Mike. The first was when he was in before he had dropped out of school. He worked in a Holiday Inn in El Paso, and he was arrested for trying to forcibly rape one of the uh, one of the people in the hotel. That's right. The That's husband right. came home, gave him a savage beating, and held him for the police. And he was arrested, but they ended up having to dismiss the case because the family was not coming back to testify. Wow. I guess the husband got it, got enough of, he gave him a good enough yeah. beating. He didn't want to. Uh... <laughs> well, they didn't want to go back to El Paso for obvious reasons. Uh, yeah. And there was a reference to another crime that he committed uh, that he was arrested for, for burglarizing hotel rooms in a hotel that he worked at when he had relocated to Los Angeles. So those were the only two legitimate employment that's ever mentioned in his background. And uh, what he was was a thief. Yes. Yeah. And he stole everything. Mm-hmm. So they and that was the other it, aspect of these murders. Usually, usually a serial murderer, he's there for the violence. This guy stole things and yes. was living on the proceeds of these uh, these uh, robberies. You know, Mike, what I would be interested in, and I'm sure this they didn't cover this in the documentary because it's not sexy or interesting, maybe to the viewers, but. I would have been interested to know where he fenced the stuff that he stole from these crime scenes right. and these murder scenes, because that would have definitely been a way to identify him. Uh, maybe and I'm, earlier. I'm sure they pursued those leads, but the fact that nothing came up and that they mentioned in the, uh, in the documentary I worked burglaries in the 83rd precinct in Bushwick for a couple of years. And what I discovered is the best burglars, the ones that lasted the longest before I caught them, were selling their swag to people on the street. They weren't going near pawn shops. Because that's how I was getting them, or for the property. Right. Probably in Skid Row. He probably sold it to people at Skid Row. Well, that's just, and the other thing, he's in the bus terminal. So it's transient people coming and going. Right. 
You know, Mike, I, I would have always, I would have thought exactly like you thought, but I remember I was working in the two, three, I was uh, the, uh, in the squad in the two, three, and a guy did a violent rape in one of the housing projects. And he took a medallion off this girl that was really identifiable. And she had had it her whole life. He went right to the pawn shop on 103rd street and third Avenue and pawned it special victims as part of their investigative checklist, went right to the pawn shop. And guess what the idiot had to supply? To get, yeah. yeah. A, a, a picture ID. They just went right to his house. <laughs> guess where you're going? You're going to Kaksaki for 15, you know? Yeah. I was amazed that the guy did that, you know? He did a violent, violent crime, took property, a robbery, rape, and then took it to a pawn shop and gave photo ID. I mean, yeah. so it does happen. These guys are not rocket scientists. That's why they're doing crimes, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? If, if, if he had half a brain in his head, he'd be doing something for a living other than hurting people. Well, for sure, for sure. Yeah. You know, every a lot of these crime scenes also, uh, uh, folks that are watching this right now, if you haven't watched the documentary, The Night Stalker, another thing he did that would get him caught today is that after doing his murders or rapes he would sit down and eat the food yeah, in right. people's refrigerator right at the table today if a criminal did that he would leave his dna saliva you know on a can or on an apple or whatever he was eating and that would get the person caught but back then there was no you know again 1985 dna didn't exist yet at least the, the processing of dna they actually, there was a criminal case when it was first, the, the history of DNA being used in criminal cases was actually on a, uh, on a pattern uh, sex crime murder in, uh, in England, in central uh, England. And what it is, it was all centralized into the one village. And when they realized, okay, he's leaving bits of himself at the scene, they actually went out and tested every male in the village. 14,000 samples. Wow. And they had, obviously, the victims uh, test, you know, that the samples recovered from, from the crime scene. And uh, the guy actually ducked being found out early on. He got someone else to supply the DNA from. And then the family member realized, oh, okay, that's why he didn't want to give it. And then they went and got him and they got his DNA and they had him identified and they took care of it. And it's actually, I read the book. What, what year was that? I want to say it was like 1983. And where was that at? What state? It was in England. Oh, in England. Uh, but there, there is source material for this uh, in, in minute detail. Joseph Wamba, who apart from writing his brilliant police novels, also did true crime books. And this was one of his. I don't remember the title of it. But it was one of his uh, one of his books, and it was the first time DNA was used as a criminal identifier. Well, do you know in Manhattan or actually New York City, the first case of a DNA identifier was in the two three precinct, a serial killer named Aaron Key. Nice. I remember that case. Yep. I remember that that was the that? first 1997. Yeah. That nice. was the first time DNA linked cases together. Was he a rapist also? He no. was a rapist also, yes. He was a serial... Well, the, science, the science was there, but it wasn't utilized. And even if it had it, if it's utilized, 
you don't have a database to compare it to. You don't really have a lot to go on. It's so advanced now. You can make well, those. Now, got, yeah, and, well, now there are national databases. It also got advanced through through the uh, World Trade Center attacks. Uh, yeah, yeah. They, now it's so advanced, you can actually make a face of what the person might look like. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And there's different types. They used to have the uh, RFLP, which is restriction fragment length polymorphism. Then there was something called short tandem repeats. Now they have a thing called polymerase chain reaction, where they can take a very small amount of DNA and replicate it, make it larger. And that's how they can make the identification. So yeah. on the World Trade Center, because they had so much DNA and they had to identify people from very small parts of their anatomy, a little piece of bone or a tooth. Well, that was, that to... was the, other, the other aspect. There's a lot of the bones that were being recovered. There was no way to actually recover DNA from them yet. Right. They continue to work on it experimentally to the point now, just like you said, they come up with the tiniest little bit of tissue. And it could be dried bone marrow on the inside of the bone. And they're able to expand it and come up with a with a full DNA chain. A few it's, it's uh, really yeah, amazing. A yeah, full yeah. profile. That's absolutely yeah, correct. Yeah. You, you know, and a lot of people get frustrated even about the Gilgo Beach murders. Mm -hmm. uh, but those bodies, for the most part, weren't recovered for over a year. So they were out in the elements for a year. So no DNA was, as, as far as I know, was ever recovered. So to link those cases to a perpetrator is, you know, you know, it's pretty damn difficult. Unless they have something that I don't know about, uh, that they have in a genealogical database or something. I don't believe they have DNA on the Gilgo Beach cases. Now, decomposed bodies, like, I, I mean, I've seen on other cases where, you know, the person's so decomposed, you can't get any DNA from them, you know? I mean... There's nothing. there's nothing. I think it's coming to the point that if there's a bone left, they're going to get it. No, for the perpetrate I'm talking about. For the right, right. You know? Right, yeah, they, they, the surface DNA. Mm -hmm. it, it probably won't survive under those circumstances. Well, particularly in the Gilgo Beach case, you're talking about they're exposed to salt water. Right. That might, that, I mean, salt water dissolves organic material, right. so... Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, you think of a case like this, and this was 1985, and you think that if this case happened today, it wouldn't have lasted. I mean, the perpetrator would have been ID'd much quicker, much quicker. Standing back and looking at this investigation and understanding the limitations of the evidence to these detectives, you look at the fact of how quickly I mean, they, they were lightning fast, given the limitations and the obstacles they had to overcome. If you look at it with, in today's detective's perspective of what constitutes evidence and what's available to look at now, it's not fair. It's, it's a different world entirely. Absolutely. What they were dealing with was old school. It was basically it's what they used to call a shoe leather detective. They were yeah, wearing got, their shoes out. You got a, a gumshoe. You got to get. Yep. You got to yeah, get out in the, the gumshoe. You got to get out on the street. Mm -hmm. You got to talk to people. You mm -hmm. got to go where the criminals going. You got to go into that element and talk to people. 
But aren't you glad you were detective at that point when we were doing that? I used to love going onto the street and interviewing people and getting yeah. in that way. That's Irma, you know something? I always said that the number one way we solve cases was talking to people. Of course, the public. And we would love when we got a fingerprint hit or we got DNA or some oh, type of forensic evidence. We'd be like, oh, that's great. That happens once in a while. Yeah. But we didn't depend on it. What we depended on was the great work of the detectives. In fact, I remember looking at old homicide cases and the person was convicted for being O positive blood type. I mean, like you said earlier, half the population is O positive blood type. Right. <laughs> I saw cases, and I saw cases like that in the, in the early 80s. There were old cases. The person was arrested, O positive blood type. They used to do the um, blood typing. Yeah. You know? I cleared a bunch of... Positive. <laughs> I cleared a bunch of old murders in the A3 when when they redid the inside of the squad, the closet in the back with the old homicides. We had to take all of that stuff out. So now I start looking through the old homicide cases, mm-hmm. and you see cases where the detectives knew who the perp was. And you look at the crime scene, you look at what was vouchered, and there's stuff there that you know that's DNA. Mm-hmm. On several of them, and my wife hated me for this because she worked in the property clerk and they handled the old DOA barrels. <laughs> I had her bring down the barrel, knock the lid off to go get that evidence to bring it to the medical examiner's office. And occasionally we're fortunate. The perp might be dead, but he ended up taking a pinch in Florida and they took his DNA. Because his last collar was late enough. I think four cases I got DNA hits like that, and I was able to, and you know, for what it's worth, I was able to take exceptional clearances. That's great. Find my lieutenants like you're spending a lot of time and a lot of money, but you got no living perps. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna give this a rest now. You know, but what it is though, like even like like that night, the girl that was killed by by um, Ramirez. I mean, for so many years, the family is wondering who killed who killed your family members. It, I mean, it puts closure on people just to know who did it. You know, Absolutely. I got some cases that I still think about that, I, that we never closed, you know, yep. wonder who did him. You know, I just wanted to mention one last thing um, before we uh, close, close the uh, top to this case. There was a couple of mistakes made. And in every major homicide investigation, there's mistakes. We're human beings. We, we make mistakes. I would always think about that sometimes when the case was over and you critique yourself. And you look at, you, you self-criticize. And I'd be like, wow, I should have known that. Or I, sh- I, I should have did this, or I should have did learn. that. And one of the big mistakes on this case was that he was in a stolen car. And another police jurisdiction vouched the car. And they told the detectives from LA that they were going to dust it for prints. Instead, they left it out in the sun for months and never dusted it for fingerprints. So we all know that fingerprints are liquid. There's a, if the liquid in the fingerprints melts because it's made from oil from your skin, and if that evaporates, there's no more fingerprints, you know? So after maybe five or six months, they went back to this car and they actually did get a big piece of evidence that helped them get him identified. But and, and another stolen car, they recovered a fingerprint from the mirror. You know how you always touch the mirror in your car, mm. the rear view mirror? And they also, when you talk about technology, they didn't have APHIS, you know, the automated fingerprint identification system. 
So they had to match up the fingerprint by eye, right? Manually. So I mean, just think of how difficult that was. But I was just going to mention, you know, like that that was a big mistake, and and you can, everyone makes mistakes. I'll put it that way. And I would I would imagine Gil Carrillo and Fr uh, Frank Salerno uh, were just every day working 16, 18 hour tours. Yeah. They couldn't think of every possible thing, you know. No, they had to be exhausted and emotionally spent at the same time because this, obviously this case is very personal to them. But what, interestingly enough, the old-fashioned way that we used to get print heads, from interviewing people, they finally came up with the name Richard Ramirez, but that's really all they had. Then they got the latent fingerprint off the mirror. Yes. They went through the state of California, and there were, I believe, eight Richard Ramirez's that were approximately the right age, race, whatever. And through manually examining all eight of those, they came up with the right one, and that's how he was ultimately identified. Yeah, but they could have had him before with the, with the car. They could have had him before with the car from the dentist, but then the, the remember the boss took them off the off the. the that was another trail. big mistake. Yeah. I wasn't going to yeah. tell him about that one. The bean counters. Yeah, they. Uh, <laughs> day of overtime for well, those yeah, on we the don't want to ruin it for the them. people that haven't watched the documentary yet. But the, right. that was that was another mistake. Yeah. I, you know, guys, we've been, we've been going for an hour and 25 minutes. And I wow, think that I think it's time. about time we wrap wow. this up. Uh, what I wanted when I wanted to do this case, I didn't want to say critique it. I just wanted to talk about it because it's a very interesting case. And to talk about it from the perspective of people that have investigated homicides and investigated serial crimes and have investigated sex crimes and investigated uh, psychopathic killers. And I think that it's good for the audience out there to hear our opinions and hear how police work is done. But I would just like in, in closing, uh, really take my hat off to the Los Angeles detectives, Gil Carrillo and Sergeant uh, Frank Salerno. Uh, you make us proud to be in this profession, Yeah. right? Mike, you got any last words? You want to plug anything before you say goodbye? No, it's just, uh, you know, if if, uh, if murder's your bag uh, and you like all the emotion and the drama that goes with it, uh, check out my novels at michaelokeefawther.com <laughs> and Amazon. Uh, all of my novels are basically based on real cases. And uh, some of you guys that worked in Brooklyn North, you're going to recognize some of them. You might even recognize yourself. That's great, Mike. Irma, you got Again, Isabella Goodwin, thank you for being the first grade female detective. Um, and um, thank you for setting the path for me. But um, everybody else should stay safe and um, watch that COVID, watch, wash your hands and um, make sure you watch my stalker. <laughs> Irma, you're the best. <laughs> you're not going to plug your private eye business? No, I don't. Okay. She's um, got I enough. Work, I work with Sage Intelligence Group and I also work for myself. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I hope you guys out there enjoyed this. I'm, I'm Bill Cannon from Police Off the Cuff. If you like this channel, please subscribe. If you want to become a Patreon customer of ours, it's uh, www.patreon.com slash police off the cuff. We have three tiers. For $7 a month, you get to be the bucket. For $9 a month, you get to polish my rack. 
And for the <laughs> premier tier, for $11 a month, you get to dip them in butter. I won't tell you what you get to dip in butter, but that's what you get to do. Anyway, I'm Bill Cannon from Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Stay safe and thank you for watching. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Stay safe.